Paul, a servant of God and an apostle to Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has worked to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. There are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things that they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupt and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Thanks, Charlotte. Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name's Jack. If I haven't met you before, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if I start talking about the game of squash, does everyone know what I'm talking about? Do you want to put your hand up if you ever played squash before? It's only a few people. Who th- thinks I'm talking about a fruit? Anyone here think I'm talking about a fruit? No, that's good. That's good. Does anyone have no idea at all what squash is? No, we're going pretty well. All right, all right. Squash is like, it's like tennis, but better, okay? And it's indoors, so you hit it against the wall, and then the other person hits it against the wall. There's a lot of running, and it's just so much better and more fun than tennis is. It's great. It's a great sport. Excellent. When I was younger, uh, I played a lot of squash, okay? I'm very fond of this sport. I played a lot of squash, and it's a game where you have to do a lot of running around, and it gets pretty complicated. And uh, when I was younger, when I was in the middle of a squash match, when I was feeling really tired, not quite sure how to get the upper hand over my opponent, uh, and feeling like maybe all was lost in the game, either my coach or my parents, my brother, someone uh, in between games would come downstairs to give me a bit of a pep talk. But there was always that one-liner that would kind of come out as we talked about this. And it's probably a one-liner you've heard as well before. The one-liner is, remember the basics. 
Remember the basics. Often I'd overcomplicate things while I was playing. I'd play shots to try and confuse my opponent that just resulted in me needing to run more instead of them. I'd try to win a point too quickly. I'd end up hitting the ball too low and lose the point or I'd overhit the ball, try to outsmash the person I was playing. So instead of keeping the ball nice and tight along the wall, it would kick out and they could do whatever they wanted with it. And always in these situations, when I was getting drawn into that trap of overthinking and overcomplicating the game, I'd hear that phrase from my coach or from my parents or my brother, that really simple line, remember the basics. Well, Paul this morning is saying to Titus and to the church in Crete, and he's saying to us as well, this same thing, remember the basics. Paul takes us back to what is foundational in the church, back to what is of first importance. In Paul's letter to Titus, we have an opportunity to look through the window into the early life, uh, into the life of the early church in Crete. This is where Titus is. This is where the church is that that Paul has left Titus in this morning in verse 5 to put in order what was left unfinished. It's a church that's very young and that's facing a few problems in their early days. These problems uh, revolve around the culture that exists in Crete and the false teachers or the rebellious people who are disrupting entire households, we read in verse 11, because they're teaching people the wrong things. And the culture that this church sprung up in was a culture that focused entirely on the individual. It focused entirely on doing everything to look after number one and number one alone. We read in verse 12 this morning, one of Crete's own prophets had said that Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, or another translation is wild animals, and they're lazy gluttons. It's a culture of uncontrolled appetites and desires. And if you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean before, uh, Crete was basically the pirate haven Tortuga. Uh, There's even reference to have being a haven for pirates and for thieves as well. So the early church we read in Titus is having a bit of a, a rocky start. They're in, they're in a hard spot. On one side there's false teachers and on the other side there's a culture that's trying to keep them uh, from remembering the basics, from remembering what is of first importance. So what does Paul say to Titus and to the church who would be reading this letter over Titus's shoulders this morning? What does he say? Well, the main idea for today is remember the basics. Hopefully you were handed a leaflet on the way in today, and in the outline there you should read, firstly, it says, good news brought to light, second, those who hold to the good news, and thirdly, those who reject it. Point one, good news brought to light. We see this morning that Titus' response to the false teaching that is around the church, and his response to the culture of the day, is twofold. There's two steps there. Step one we see in verses one to four, step two we see in verses five to nine. And what is step one? That's what we've already said. It's remember the basics. Remember what is of first importance. In Paul's greeting to Titus, we see what Paul holds to as of first importance in his ministry. And it's a reminder of what Titus, who Paul calls his son in the common faith in verse four, has been taught by Paul as he ministered alongside him. What is of first importance to Paul? We read in verse 1, firstly, it's the faith of God's elect. Secondly, continuing to grow in the knowledge of the truth. Firstly, the faith of God's elect. Secondly, the knowledge of the truth. Paul writes, Paul, 
a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So what are Paul's priorities? Well, firstly, it's to see people come to know and trust in Jesus. This is what lies at the foundation of the church, the gospel. The good news that God's promised saviour has come into the world has died for us to save us from the penalty for our rejection of God and has risen to new life so that we could be forgiven for the way that we've treated God and so that we could share in new life with him when we put our faith in Jesus as the only one who can save us. So Paul has been going around everywhere and he's been echoing the words of Jesus himself. Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1 are repent and believe. In other words, turn to Jesus. Trust in him for forgiveness of sin and new life. More than anything in this world, you need Jesus. And Paul sets out that this is of first importance. This is crucial that people turn to and put their trust in Christ. It's the beginning, it's the middle, and it's the end point of Christian life. And Paul Paul doesn't say that his desire is that people put their faith in Jesus and then live the rest of their life trying to earn God's favour. Paul is saying his priority is that people would have faith in Jesus and then live the rest of their life by faith in Jesus. This is Paul's task, to further the faith of God's elect. The people in Crete desperately need to know and trust in Jesus. And having trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin for new life, to continue living a life of trusting in him. It's the same everywhere. It's the same today here in Adelaide. This is of first importance to Paul, that people are saved. And secondly, having put their faith in Christ, Paul's desire is that they will continue to grow in their knowledge of the truth. That they will grow in the knowledge of who God has revealed himself to be and the truth of God's word. And how has he revealed this? Well, this is interesting in the opening verses because Paul makes the point of saying in verses 2 to 3 that this truth that rests in the hope of eternal life, it's something that God has chosen to make known through the preaching of Paul. And what's this preaching been about? Well, if we flick around in Titus to chapter 2, we read that this teaching, this preaching is about God, our Saviour, who we read then in chapter 3, verse 4, is a God who has revealed his kindness and love and his salvation to us through Jesus Christ. So Paul's teaching is centered all around Jesus. It's centered on the good news of who he is, good news that has been brought to light in him. And this is a task that Paul's been entrusted with by Jesus himself. That's what it means for Paul to be an apostle in that first verse there. Jesus tasked Paul with furthering the faith of God's elect and with growing them in their knowledge of the truth. This was Paul's special job. And this knowledge of the truth, the teaching and preaching of the apostles, it's what the early church was to devote themselves to. And we saw this earlier in the year, didn't we, in Acts chapter 2. But this is also teaching and preaching that's being passed down to us today in the Bible, in God's word through which God speaks to us today. God's word that we're reading right now, words that tell of the hope of eternal life through Jesus and Jesus alone. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? 
And isn't it amazing what Paul says about God's word? It transforms people. Paul says, the end of verse 1 there, that this knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. See, what Paul is saying here is that as people get to know God more, as they sit and dwell in the knowledge of the truth, as they continue to cling to Christ, well, that God gets to work through his powerful word and that this helps us to live more for him. And it makes sense, doesn't it? That what we know informs how we act toward people and how we live our lives. Kind of what's in the brain works itself out through the hands. What's in the heart works itself out through the hands, doesn't it? For example, um, I know that my friend, my housemate, he really hates creamy pasta. I didn't know this when I first moved in, so I cooked a lot of creamy pasta because I love it. But my housemate, he hates it. He doesn't like creamy pasta. So when it's my turn to cook, I don't cook creamy pasta. But how much more so when these words are coming from the creator of all things, from the one who created the world by his word, and who transforms us through his word as well. What we know of God shapes our response to him, and we know him through his word. This is a crucial foundation for Paul's letter to Titus and to the Christians in Crete. Because the rest of Paul's instructions, they flow from this foundation. That we must depend on Jesus and him alone in all things. That we desperately need Jesus. That we are called to trust in him as the only one who can save us. And as we continue to depend on him in God's word. And God's word to help us continue living by faith in him as we know him more and more. This is Paul's top priority. The faith of God's people, that people come to know Jesus and that they depend on God's word, on the knowledge of the truth. I heard it described this way recently in a sermon that if faith in Jesus, knowledge of who God is, is the seed that's planted deep in us, then godliness is the fruit that will grow as a result of that as God gets to work in our hearts through the Spirit, by his word. The more we dwell on the truth of God, the more we seek to follow the truth about God, the more we will want to live a life that pleases him, not in order to earn his favour, but in response to the favour he's already shown us through his son Jesus. That is step one here from Paul for us today in verses 1 to 4. Remember the basics. Hold to what is of first importance. Don't let go of Jesus. Step two then in verses five to nine is to do with who Titus will find to lead the church in Crete. Point two, those who hold to the good news. Verse five to nine are pretty simple in one sense because Titus, having been reminded of the basics, is then instructed by Paul to find leaders who will remember the basics themselves and who will hold to what is of first importance as their foundation. It makes sense, doesn't it? If this is to be what the church is to hold to, what Christians are to hold to, then those who lead as elders or pastors in the church must hold to these things as of first importance, as should everyone. If one of the basics of playing the game of squash is that I need to hit the ball against the front wall, and then my coach comes in and he says, I don't actually believe in hitting the ball. 
I think that's stupid. I think a much more effective way of winning the game of squash is to go whack your opponent with your racket. You should try that. If my coach came in and kind of told me to do this thing, it would be pretty counterproductive, wouldn't it? The game would completely fall to pieces. That's not how things work. That's not the basics of the game. You'd be a terrible coach. If it is of first importance that people trust in Jesus, that they continue to grow in their knowledge of the truth and their relationship with him, then it makes sense that the leaders Paul wants to see raised up in the church believe this to be of first importance as well. Now it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul doesn't instruct Titus to look for the most engaging speaker or to look for the greatest project manager, the greatest at dealing with conflict, the, uh, the greatest at, at making money, not even the, the most influential person. And I take it that this is because all the people being referred to in verses 10 to 16, well, they could have had those same skills as well. But what is happening in the church when those people of verses 10 to 16 who don't have faith in Christ, who don't hold to the knowledge of the truth as it has been revealed, get to work? We read in verse 11 that they're disrupting entire households, that they are proclaiming merely human commands. They're not proclaiming the the truth of who God is as is revealed in his word. That while they might claim to know God in verse 16 by their actions, they're actually denying God. So instead of looking for the most skilled people around the place, Titus is instructed to look at three areas of a potential leader's life. Firstly, in looking for godliness in the household. Secondly, in looking for godliness in character. And thirdly, in looking for a deep commitment to the word of God. Why? Because Titus is to look for those who remember the basics, who hold to what is of first importance. Faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone, and a desire to keep knowing him through God's word. And if this is what they hold to, this will be evident. It will be evident in their household, in their character, and their commitment to God's word. Paul writes, firstly, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. The idea that Paul is getting at by encouraging Titus to look at the household is this. If an elder or a pastor is is to be the steward of God's household in verse uh, 7, meaning the church, then his own household will be a reflection of how he will lead in God's household. His own household will be a reflection of how he will lead in God's household. If someone's household life is not characterized by their relationship with God, then their role in the household of God will not be characterized by this relationship either. Firstly, if they're married then if they're not being faithful to their wife, if, if they do not love and care for them, well, why would they be faithful to Christ's bride, the church, if this is the case? They would be showing that what is of first importance to them actually leans in the direction of themselves, not Jesus and his people. And secondly, if they have children, what does their children's conduct say about their parents' leadership? Paul here isn't talking about grown children who've left the home and who've arrived at the decision not to follow Jesus. I think that's an important thing to say. And I want to recognize that this actually might be the case for some parents here. We might read this verse and um, actually need to recognize that this is an area of hurt, of concern and of great prayer for all of us to do together. Something for us to love one another in as we grieve those in our families 
who've not yet put their trust in Jesus. But these aren't the children that Paul has in mind here. Paul has in mind here young children who are growing up in the household and who haven't left yet. What Paul is saying, I think, is that if an elder is not seeking to sow the seeds of the gospel at home, then they will be unlikely to do so in the church. There's this idea here that when children are young, they reflect their parents. They want to be like dad, they want to be like mum, and they follow around in their footsteps, and this is reflected in their attitude toward the faith of their parents as well. If a child were asked, do you know who Jesus is, and their response was to scratch their head and say, what is a Jesus, then that would probably indicate that their mum or dad might not have bothered to tell them about who he is. It might be an indication that their faith in Jesus isn't actually much of a priority for them at home. Likewise, we read that we would see it in their attitudes as well. Now, Paul's not saying that if a child throws a temper tantrum, then the parents are ungodly or failing or even multiple temper tantrums, that's not what Paul is saying. And I don't think it's saying that if a child chooses to ignore their mum or dad in a given situation, or disobeys them, or maybe hits a sibling, that the parents are failing or ungodly. That's not what Paul is saying. I do think, though, that if a child is running rampant through the city, being willfully disobedient constantly, is doing what is obviously wrong, is not being held to account by their parents who love them the most and who want what is best for them, So this is probably an indication that this will be that parent's same attitude in God's household as well. So firstly, we see that Paul is pointing Titus to look at the household, household, at the home life of a potential elder or pastor to see if their faith in Christ and their pursuit of God has taken root there. But secondly, Paul points Titus to look at the character of a proposed elder or pastor. There are five things they should not be. There are six things that they should be. Paul writes, Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, meaning above reproach. Or in other words, when you throw mud at them, it doesn't stick. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And the idea here is that those who Titus is to look for, to lead the church as pastors, are those who give visible evidence in their behavior that the gospel has taken root in their lives. Remember, faith in Jesus and knowledge of the truth leads to godliness as we cling to Christ and seek him through his word. God gets to work in us. The big idea that is being drawn out here is what drives this person? What drives this person? Instead of being someone who is proud and arrogant or overbearing, they should show humility. They should be someone who could hear from their church that maybe they've messed up in a particular area and need to repent of that. Someone who could listen to wise counsel and decisions on decisions that need to be made. They should be someone who's not controlled by their temper. This doesn't drive forward their response to people. Someone who's not violent, but who seeks peace. Someone who's not seeking a position of authority in the church in order to pursue dishonest gain to their own advantage. They are to love God's people as Christ has showed us how to love. To be hospitable, to be welcoming and loving. 
John Stott puts it helpfully. He writes, An elder or a pastor should at least exhibit the beginnings of the fruit of the Spirit in their life, that we can see them growing there. Fruit that springs up out of faith in Christ in the pursuit of knowing God through his word and being shaped by it. Fruit that springs up out of holding to what is of first importance. Jesus. They shouldn't just say that they're a follower of Jesus. They should live like a follower of Jesus. There's been a lot of stories that have come out recently, hasn't there, about leaders in the church who have been bullies, who've been overbearing and domineering, or have abused their position of power for their own gain, or who have really hurt people and sought to cover it up. This is terrible. This is the behaviour that we read of in verses 10 to 16. Behaviour that is disruptive to whole households, that leads people away from Jesus. It's not in keeping with the fruits of the Spirit. Paul's saying, look to their character to see if the way that they act accords with having a faith in Jesus and accords with the knowledge of the truth of who God is. If it doesn't, then that's probably evidence that this person doesn't know the basics or they've forgotten it. So thirdly then, Paul says to look for a deep commitment to the gospel and a deep commitment to God's word. Paul writes in verse 9, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So what will be the thing that characterizes how this person seeks to lead? Will it be that they hold up the Bible as authoritative, as powerful to save as the gospel is proclaimed, as the truth to abide by and to follow, to obey, or will they treat God's word like a doorstop? Just something to add on when they feel like it, or an interesting footnote to refer to every once in a little while. Do we read the thing that will enable the church in Crete, the Christians there, to respond to the culture in a godly way, the thing that will help encourage them to pursue what is true and to know God, the thing that will help rebuke what is wrong, is God's word as it has been revealed to us. In one sense, Paul's instructions, um, they make a lot of sense, don't they? If faith in Christ and God's word uh, and knowing him better are of first importance, then those who lead the church should hold to this as of first importance, as should everyone else. And the evidence that they do this will be seen in the fruit of godliness that is born out of a faith in Jesus and a deep commitment to God's word and knowing him. Skills that are, that are necessary, that are very secondary to this, they're the things that can be taught more easily. But in another sense, it's very hard, isn't it? Because who can fully live up to the person that Paul is describing in these verses? They seem pretty perfect. And this is why we need to go back to basics, always. This is why Paul's reminder of where godliness comes from and his reminder of who we must depend on is so important as we read this letter together. Because while these are all attributes that we should all strive for, the reality is that we stumble along the way. That we all always need Jesus. We don't need him once, we need him always. A life that begins by faith and reliance on Jesus ends the same way it began. Jesus is the perfect one. He's the one who can live flawlessly and up to this description. He's the one who's the true head of the church 
its true leader. And so it is on him that we rely the most. It's on him who we need to turn to constantly in repentance when we get these things wrong, asking for forgiveness and knowing that he forgives. And I think this is why holding to the trustworthy message and encouraging and rebuking by sound doctrine is so important because in holding to the trustworthy message, being rebuked and encouraged by sound doctrine, we're pointed again and again and again to our need for Jesus and to look for him for guidance in everything. We need to be reminded of this always. We might come before him in repentance when we get things wrong and ask for forgiveness, knowing with assurance that we have it. We need to remember that it's not our godliness that makes us right with God. It's not our godliness that makes us right with God. It's faith in Jesus. We need to come back to this truth. Well, Paul has reminded us of the basics. He's instructed us to raise up leaders who hold to the basics. Where do we go from here? Well, see, Titus, it's a book for all of us to tuck away in the back pocket. Uh, Chapter 1 is kind of like the dummy's guide to choosing leaders in the church. And I want to say that I don't think this just applies to the pastor of a church, though. It applies to everyone. This is a letter that was meant to be read over the shoulder of Titus by a church of people who desire to live this way and who desire to see others live this way as they come to faith in Jesus as well by remembering the basics of not letting go of Jesus. In chapter 2 next week, we'll look at how this impacts our relationships with one another as we dig deep into God's word and are committed to that together as a church. But I think there are some really helpful applications to draw out of this passage today as we think about remembering the basics. The first is this. Don't listen to someone just because they have a million views on YouTube and call themselves a pastor. Don't just listen to someone because they have a million views on YouTube or on podcasts and because they call themselves a pastor. I think for us today, this is the thing that's likely um, to help bad teaching infiltrate churches but is likely to cause disruptions, as we read is happening in Crete in verse 11 today. Paul has given us the test to see if someone should be listened to, hasn't he? He said, look for the firm foundation, their faith in Christ. Do they follow Jesus? And do they have a deep commitment to the word of God, to the knowledge of truth that helps us live for him? Don't just uh, trust someone's teaching because they have a million views on YouTube. And secondly, as I said before, have Titus tucked away in that back pocket, maybe for when someone is aspiring to be a pastor in the church, but also when anyone is aspiring to serve in any role in the church, like we all do. Do they have a firm foundation of faith in Christ and in God's word? Or maybe you're thinking about stepping into a leadership role of some sort. Reflect on these words in your life. Ask someone to catch up with you maybe, to read through this together and to ask you some of those hard questions about these areas in your life. Keep Titus tucked away in the back pocket. Now thirdly and finally, well, remember the basics. Remember how Jesus has saved you and that godliness isn't what means you're made right with God. Faith in Jesus is. We desperately need to come back to that foundation over and over again But let's pray that the fruit of godliness would grow in our lives as we cling to Christ and as we dig deeply into his word together. Pray that he would be at work in our hearts. 
Pray that you would live in response to the grace of God, not that you would try to live a life that earns it, because we never will be able to. So when you're feeling under the pump in life, at church, remember the basics. If you're unsure about um, a decision that needs to be made and feeling anxious about that, remember the basics. Remember who Jesus is. Cling to him through his word. We're about to sing about what it means that we can come to God through Jesus, and we're going to praise God for that and for what he's done for us in his son. But for now, let me close by praying and asking God that he would help us to remember the basics and not let go. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the good news of who Jesus is. Thank you for the life that we have in his name. Thank you for saving us. And Lord, thank you that we can know you more and more through your word. We pray that you would help us to cling to your son Jesus and to pursue you through your word. That this would be shape, uh, what shapes how we live our lives. That this would be what shapes how we continue to respond to the grace that you've shown to us in your son Jesus. We pray that you would raise up amongst us godly leaders who will lead us to you, Lord. Who will teach faithfully from your word. We pray that for all of us, you'd help us to remember to cling to Jesus for all of our lives. Amen.